I would have people say, I think that this injury, this spinal cord injury, the best thing that ever happened to me. And I would be completely perplexed, confused. It would make me angry to hear people say that because I wasn't there. And then as you move forward in life, as the years go behind you, you can no longer separate your disability from your life experience. Everything I've done in my adult life, everything that has happened, has happened from a wheelchair, in my wheelchair, and sometimes because of it. I never would have done wheelchair sports <laughs> if I wasn't in a wheelchair, meeting the people that I met. So my wheelchair has, in fact, been the best thing that's ever happened to me because I hate to say it, I've overcome obstacles that I never could have dreamed of if this hadn't happened to me. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. But you knew both of those things, did you not? It is a great day to be alive, which you also knew. And you also know that this is Crazy Money, the place where we explore the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning through the lens of my guests' expertise and or money journeys, money or life journeys. Today's a good example that this is a life journey. This isn't specifically about money today, but today an old friend named Maura McVan Coley is going to share what her life has been like since at the age of 17, she had an accident in which she sustained a traumatic spinal cord injury and lost her ability to walk. This is in keeping with the topic of the hedonic treadmill that we discuss on the program, and we're going to get to it in just one moment. But first of all, I want to say welcome to the new members of the Facebook Crazy Money Listeners Group, Mary and Nanny, Lainey, Dazon, and Dave Allen. You're coming from all corners of the United States. I welcome you. I also want to let you know, for those of you in Atlanta, I have shows coming up this weekend, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Midtown Atlanta. What a treat that we're getting back to do live comedy in rooms like the Laughing Skull Lounge. If you haven't gotten your shots, get your shots. Get vaccinated so you can come out and laugh with everybody else and not have to have a horribly guilty conscience about the fact that you're not doing your part. Do your part, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, that got a little aggressive. All right. Hey, this is kind of ironic. The first episode since last week when I talked about how the dude wrote me and said, you talk too much at the top of the episode, we're going to get right to it today. We're going to jump right in. Let me tell you about Maura McVan Coley. She's my guest today. She'll explain how we know each other, but suffice to say, we grew up around each other in schools and church and stuff. And in 1988, Maura was on her way to a high school event and she had a car accident and she suffered a traumatic spinal cord injury, which deprived her of her ability to walk. Can you imagine being 17 years old? Maybe you have been, or maybe a loved one of yours has gone through this situation, but can you imagine what it takes for a 17-year-old to, with all these expectations, what success looks like is being popular or you know getting all A's or making the sports team or dating the right person. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything changes. In an instant, everything changes. Well, on today's episode, Moore shares with great candor how she adapted logistically and emotionally to her new and very different circumstances. She offers insights into what the rehabilitation program was like, and then how she navigated getting to college, going to college, traveling through Europe, and figuring out adult life. One of the obvious questions, I think, as you put yourself in the circumstance of a young person is, what do you do about dating? What do you do about love? Are you worried that you're damaged and you're not worthy of somebody else's love? Well, Maura gets very real and shares candidly the deep emotional insights into that part of her life. 
Let me tell you a little bit more about her today. Maura McVan Coley and her husband, Kevin, raised two children and a dog in Daphne, Alabama, where they own and operate a small business called We Rock the Spectrum Daphne. That is a gym that promotes inclusive play for children of all abilities. Maura also runs a pediatric speech therapy practice called Speech Time Therapy Services. She loves traveling new places with her family, helping others, and promoting disability awareness and acceptance through her work and life example. She has used a wheelchair for almost 33 years. I'm proud to share and grateful to Maura for sharing with you this conversation with Maura McVan Coley. Maura McVan Coley, welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, Paul. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Happy to be here. Maura, I wonder if you might describe for our listeners how we know each other. Well, we know each other from our childhood in Atlanta, Georgia. We both went to the same elementary school and high school. I was in class with your sister, Claire, and Claire and I were friends and spent some time together. We did some projects together in school at St. Jude's over there in Atlanta, Georgia. And then, you know, I used to see you walking around the halls at St. Pius High School. You were a couple of years ahead of me, and it was just always fun to have friends who had older siblings at school and see everybody (laughs) hanging out. We went to the same elementary school, same high school, same church. Tell me about your family. Where are your parents from? Okay. Both of my parents are from Ireland and they traveled to America, not at the same time or not with one another. My father's from Sligo, Ireland. My mother is from an area called the Burren in County Clare, Ireland. My dad came over to the United States in the 50s and my mom in the early 60s. And they met in New York. It was sort of a magical meeting as the lore goes in our family. My mom and dad met each other and pretty much fell in love very quickly and were engaged within a year and married a year later. And we started our lives up there in the Bronx, New York, where my sister and I were born. What kind of work did your dad do and how did your family find their way to Atlanta? My dad was a tailor. My dad's dad was a tailor. And so he grew up with the trade and he had some formal training in London before coming to America. And when he came to America, he was hired at Saks Fifth Avenue and was working in the tailor department at Saks. They offered him a position at the Saks in Atlanta. And he came down to visit and knew this was in 1977 he knew that it was going to be a really good move for his family because at the time he was commuting a lot from Long Island. We had moved out to the island by then. He was realizing that he wasn't spending any time at home with me and my sister came down to the city of Atlanta, which was just taking off. I think he felt the energy of the city, which felt really exciting to him. And he knew that this was just going to be a great place to bring his family. So we packed up and moved down to Atlanta and started our life down there. It was a great move for our family. We've always, always said, thank God that, uh, you know, Saks brought us to Atlanta. Thank God for Saks Fifth Avenue, for sure. (laughs) So what kind of a student were you in high school? What kind of activities were you involved in? I was a real active sports type of student. I mean, I got okay grades. I was kind of focused on academics, but I had a lot of energy and I always wanted to try any sports I could get into. I played a lot of soccer. I played basketball. I ran track. I was a cheerleader. I was on the swim team. I was on the diving team. I loved doing physical activity. And it was where I met people who I got along with really well. And I loved being part of the team. And I really was fortunate because I had some really good coaches at an early age, even before high school who 
taught me, I don't know, without saying it, just taught me about self-confidence and sticking with something so that we could have some success. And then at the high school level, I had some more good coaches who were really good at bringing the team together. My high school basketball team in particular was, we were just a group of girls from the suburbs of Atlanta playing basketball. We had some pretty good athletes, but I think as a team, we came together and had more successes than people expected from us because we had some good leadership. And then my soccer coach in high school was excellent. She was actually my husband's aunt, and she was a great coach. And she was really, really focused on teaching us how to work as a team and how when we all work as a team, sort of not focusing on one or two great individuals, but all of us together, that we could have greater success on the soccer field than if we just depend on one really strong player or two really strong players. And as you're going into your senior year of high school, what were you thinking college would hold for you? At that time, I was looking at schools in Georgia and Alabama, kind of not really sure. I didn't have any idea what I wanted to be, quote unquote, when I grew up, but I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew that was going to be the next step for me. And I was thinking about Auburn and Alabama and Georgia, you know, sort of like many of our other peers, staying close to home and staying in the South. I really wanted to stay in the South because... You know, I loved it down here. Having a good time, going to school, being social. Yes. Yes. And then what happened in September 1988? So in September of 1988, I was going out to a football game to meet some friends. A guy called me up, asked me to meet me at the football game. I was like, yeah, I think that sounds great. So jumped in the car. It was raining. The weather wasn't good that night. I barely made it out of the uh, neighborhood and I hydroplaned and I was thrown from my car and immediately knew when I tried to get up that something was seriously wrong. I don't remember anything for three days. It's sort of like the shock to the system when you recognize like nothing works, (laughs) when you sort of wake up, even if it's two seconds after the incident, it's, it's hard on the brain. The woman who found me because I was thrown about 30 feet from my car said that I told her, I think I'm paralyzed. I can't feel my legs. I can't get up. I can't move. And so I knew right away, but it took me a couple of days to process that in any way that I could cope with. And I don't remember any of those three days, but people say I was awake and alert and chatting and talking in the hospital to my family and my doctors, but it really, it took me a couple of days to come out of that fog and recall all the details that followed. And when you came to, if that's an appropriate expression, after those three days, were you in the room surrounded by your family? The first thing I really remember is the doctor standing in front of me with a spine, sort of a doctor's skull and spine. And he was explaining to me the details of what it meant to have a spinal cord injury, which is, of course, something I had never considered or thought about because it was 1988 before the Americans with Disabilities had been passed, people with disabilities really weren't present in our culture. We didn't see them out and about. And it was just sort of like cognitive reorganization about what was going to happen to me moving forward in life. Like everything changed in that moment. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what this was going to mean. Were you 
freaked out? Were you like, holy shit? Were you, were you scared? Did you cry? Like, what were the emotions running through you as you started to realize how significantly you'd been injured? I did not freak out. I remember I did not cry. I remember being in Shepherd Rehab Facility, sort of like two months into it, and being like, I probably should feel sad, more sad about this. And I remember one time being like, I should really probably be crying and having these emotions. I think that's how the denial that I had for how it impacted my life was manifesting itself in me. I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel scared. I just, every day we'd wake up, go through the routines of the therapies that were set up at the time at Shepherd Spinal Center. And I just kept moving forward. I think a lot of the reasons why I felt okay was because we had so much support from the community. I had people coming to visit me, people sort of like cheering me on, uh, sending me letters on a daily basis. I think from St. Pius that the religion classes, the first two months after my injury, the religion classes would write me like a cheerleading get well note. And to receive those on my bed at the end of each day after physical therapy or occupational therapy, it just helped me. It made me feel great. It made me feel like people cared about me. There's something about that kind of support that really helps people and families get through that initial shock of what has happened. And it helped me. And I know it helped my family also. Now that you're a mom and this is 30 years later, what do you think your parents were feeling through that whole process? I think they were totally in shock. I think they were handling it differently. I think my dad was unsure at all what to expect for my future. And then my mom was galvanized into figuring out how we were going to help me find a way in life that I could be as independent as possible. She was a nurse. She had worked at the hospital where Shepherd Center had had its original floor before the building was built in the late 70s. She was familiar with this idea that there could be life after spinal cord injury, but they knew they didn't know or have the tools to give me what I needed to figure out how to actually do life after wheelchair in a way that was going to be, you know, rewarding and fruitful. We didn't mention what are the extent of the injuries that you underwent and Did you wonder if you were going to be able to have children? And did you start grappling with big life issues like that, which are pretty heavy for an 18-year-old? So my injury level is sort of like high waist, like at the top of my waist. So it's more than just like my legs don't move and I can't walk. I have no trunk stability. It's really important that I have good seating so that I have good posture Having good posture is more than just like looking good in the world. It, it really has to do with <laughs> just feeling, you know, maintaining your physical wicked abs. Your, <laughs> right, right. Just making sure that as I move forward in life, like if you're sitting in a wheelchair, I want to be sitting up straight so that my shoulders are having the correct motion so that I don't injure them. But things like transferring, getting in and out of my wheelchair, these things you, you would never think of, approaching the car, approaching the bed to go to bed, just taking a shower every day. It was so frustratingly hard. I didn't really want to think about how hard that was, but it was impacting my life every day, particularly after I got out of the hospital. So after I got out of Shepherd, where everything is set up so beautifully and you have so much support from nurses and staff and people all around you were all sort of going through the same thing. There's this community 
uh, feeling that of hope and hopefulness and everything, you know, we can do this. You're going to do this, get through this. But once I got out of there, I didn't have that sort of support. People weren't familiar with people with disabilities. I was not as strong as I needed to be. I could not get in and out of the car that easily, even though I felt like I should have. And I, it was getting harder and harder as I moved forward. Uh, returning to high school, everybody would come up to me and I got this sort of social support, like, yay, we're so glad you're here and you're doing awesome and you're great. And I was thinking, I don't think I'm doing great. <laughs> I don't feel great mm. at all. I feel really freaked. I was getting more and more freaked out as the spring progressed. And as I started thinking about going off to college, everybody was talking about college and the next step. And I was thinking, I don't even care. I care less and less every day about what's going to happen after I graduate from high school. I think my parents saw that in my face at home. They recognized that this light had gone out, that I was sitting around a lot. I wasn't, I wasn't truly happy. And I was going down into the basement and sort of hiding out a lot. There was evidence that this could go south, not go well in the long term, unless we were really active about my future. So you go back to school, people are kind, but did you feel like you fit in? And did you have a place at school anymore? Well, since I wasn't doing sports, I didn't even know what to do with myself. I had never gone home after school ever since I started high school. And all of a sudden, three o'clock until I went to bed at 10 or 11 o'clock at night felt like this really long, boring stretch of time. Mm. My role as a student athlete was eliminated immediately. And I think the only word you know that I can think of was sort of embarrassing and shameful to be the person that this thing happened to. I mean, we had other people who had tragedies. I wasn't alone, but I did not feel like I was finishing off my high school career in the way that I intended or wanted to or expected to. Did you have to fight the urge to feel sorry for yourself? I don't know if I I felt sorry for myself. I just felt numbed out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember feeling sorry for myself. Maybe a little frustrated, maybe angry. Maybe that's how that sort of was manifesting itself inside of me. I don't know if I was capable of feeling sorry for myself because I didn't want to feel sorry for myself. I didn't want to have those feelings. I wanted to, I wanted to believe what I had been told at Shepherd, which was, oh my gosh, you can have the most normal, typical life but you just got to find the avenues to get there. And for me, that was through sport, finding the individuals in sports who could show me how to do this life in this new way. What role did wheelchair sports play in your physical and emotional recovery? I would not have been able to do anything I've done in my life if it had not been for wheelchair sports. When I arrived at the University of Illinois, I was immediately put in an environment with people who already knew what they were doing and were moving on with their lives, setting goals for the future and asking the question, what's next? What are you going to do next? Instead of staying stuck in the story of what happened to me and how did I get here? And being in that environment and being around some of the greatest wheelchair athletes in the world at the time who were making goals to win gold medals at the Paralympics or shatter records at marathons, I was 
learning how to bake my own personal goals while encouraging the people around me to be successful at what they wanted to do. That has informed my experience ever since. Like, stay focused. I want to know what I need to do, where I want to go, but I also want to be instrumental in helping the people around me achieve their goals and do what they need to do. And I want to do that as a friend, as a speech pathologist, and I really want to do it for my kids as a parent. What were your earliest accomplishments in wheelchair sports that made you feel proud? The first thing I did was start to feel like a competitive player in wheelchair basketball. But the biggest accomplishment that really showed me I could do things that seemed unimaginable to me was running marathons. I was 20 years old. My coach suggested that I get out there and start training for marathons. And 26 miles sounded like an impossibility. By the time I ran my first marathon competitively, I had never run more than 20 miles. It was a complete unknown going into that race. Would I be able to complete that last 10K, feel good and feel healthy and strong? And we trained for it properly, strengthening and conditioning. I ran the race. I had a great race. I got third place at the Chicago Marathon. Another thing I couldn't have imagined I might have achieved And just having that in my back pocket, having that in my backpack moving forward in life, it gave me a lot of confidence that I could make goals that seemed almost too hard and follow through with them and move on to the next one. Have a great time doing it. Did you lose to a Kenyan wheelchair marathoner? (laughs) I did not. (laughs) Uh, I've lost to another University of Illinois athlete. I think. Oh, damn it. I think the women took one, two, and three in that race. Oh, good, good, good. It was, it was and I didn't mean to suggest <laughs> that by finishing third, you lost. But I, I just, want, oh, I just no. wanted to make a joke about Kenyan wheelchair athletes. <laughs> How long does it take to become wheelchair proficient? <laughs> well, it's different for different people. And by the way, I just saw you bump into a chair. So that was 30 years later. <laughs> Yeah, I still bump into things. I've got a pretty good sense of like where I am in space, thank goodness. But it's different for everybody. So I, I can't say for somebody who has like a lower injury and has a lot of function or people who have incomplete injuries and their legs work and they can sort of like stand up and balance themselves. They might land in a wheelchair and be savvy and ready to go within weeks or months. I have a higher level of injury. I didn't have the upper body strength, even though I had been an athlete that I needed to just jump in and out of cars and jump in and out of couches and chairs or wherever it is I wanted to be. That took a while. And that took strengthening and conditioning that came down the road. But initially, it all just felt very hard and not fun. So I would wheel up to the car, say, and have to get into the car. And I would just sit there and look at it. (laughs) Oh, I got to do this. You know, It took a while. It was hard for me. What kind of adaptation was made to your car and to your home? And did insurance pay for that? I don't think insurance paid for that at that time and never has since. So in our home, we had an unfinished basement. What we did is we had sort of a lift put in from the lower floor down to the basement. And through the community, we had lots of friends in our community and lots of friends from back up in New York, my parents' Irish friends. They all were tradespeople, construction, plumbing, electrical. They all came down in February. I came out of the hospital in December. In February, several of my dad and mom's old friends came down. And together with members of the community from our church, really, they finished out that basement in one week. So, Wow. 
totally finished it out. Beautiful, spacious, an area that I could function in because architectural barriers can be something that can make life in wheelchair totally impossible. So we created a space for me that I could live in that was comfortable and open and big enough and wheelchair accessible bathroom and closet. Just those big but small changes can make life a lot easier and made a life a lot easier for me. So this is February of your senior year of high school. What are you thinking about college? Like, I know you were kind of bummed out thinking maybe that wasn't going to happen, but how did that thinking evolve? I went and visited a couple of colleges and it was 1989 at this point. The ADA didn't get passed until 1991. So no one had to have parking spaces, curb cutaways, bathrooms that were wheelchair accessible, dorms that were accessible. And I went to visit Georgia and Alabama and Auburn, some of these different schools around the South. And it just was really evident at the time that I was going to be treated completely differently than my able-bodied peers, or then I would have been treated if I wasn't a wheelchair user. You know, I was still like, I don't understand why this would happen. It, It didn't make a lot of sense to me. So the dorms weren't accessible. I wasn't going to be able to stay in the dorms with the other incoming students. And there were just some like really strange patterns. Like one of the schools that I went to visit, I think I may have mentioned that the office for students with disabilities was on the second floor in a building that didn't have an elevator. So it was obvious that that is, that is so dark. That is, I mean, like it's, that couldn't be more like hilariously dark. Right. It was sort of like, this doesn't feel right. This has got to be a joke. (laughs) What better way to demonstrate that you understand the needs of students with disabilities. Right. Then making it inaccessible. Completely. Completely. <laughs> we're for you, but we're not for you. So So how did you find I, the right place? When did you know you found the right place? I told my parents, I was like, I don't even want to deal with this anymore. This is horrible. This is not fun. Everybody's like talking about their college visiting experiences, excitement. And I was just finding it more and more depressing. So my mom made some phone calls. She was like, we got to find the right place for Mora to go to school where she can meet some people. I had met some of the Peachtree Spinners, which was the local wheelchair road racing and track team. And they kept saying to me, you're an Illinois girl. You should be with those women up at the University of Illinois. I didn't even know what school, what are you talking about? My mom made some phone calls and we were up there in May. I mean, it was late. It was a late admission. They invited me up to visit the school. I met with one of my coaches and a couple of the student athletes That was all I needed. It was so obvious that there was a completely different vibe happening there. Students were vibrant, bright, excited. They just shone with health and excitement, smiling and obviously enjoying life and having a great time. And I was like, I want to hang out with these guys. I want to know what these people are doing. I need to be here. And my parents were like, we will do whatever we have to do to get you to this school. Like, just point us in the right direction. And I was there in August, starting school in the dorms with people I'd never met before, trying to figure out what college life was going to be. Was it scary to leave Atlanta as a newly disabled person? I don't remember being scared at all. I remember being sort of excited and just thoroughly excited. Like, yay, I'm going to college. I'm going to do this. I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to have a lot of fun. And I was like, I'm going to be a wheelchair athlete. (laughs) That's going to be my place in the world. I'm going to hang out with those people. Really, at that time, I was like, that's all I'm going to do. 
I really didn't feel good about how I looked. I felt awkward. I was I wasn't sitting well in my wheelchair. I wanted to hang out with people in wheelchairs and sort of segregate myself in that way. But quite naturally, I immediately started making friends in the dorms. And that is that sort of social component to what was going on at the University of Illinois starting, you know, 40 years before that. So they had been working with students in wheelchairs, particularly for a very long time and and setting up the university so that we could have a normal and typical university experience. Maura, you know, on this program, we've talked a lot about the hedonic treadmill, which is the human tendency to return to a set point of happiness after something really good. And I use this in quotations, like winning the lottery or something really bad, like being paralyzed in an automobile accident, that we revert to who we were on an emotional level. Does that concept resonate with your experience? It does. But I also feel like at any point in someone's life, they can find themselves in a slump or feeling stuck in life and leading into or hoping that this hedonic treadmill theory is true might not have been enough for me and engaging in like certain practices, being social, making goals, being physically active was one that was especially important for me. I think you also have to use some of those strategies to help you return to that that homeostatic sense of well-being and not just hope that you'll get back there because what is, of some set point. What does homeostatic mean? <laughs> is that like the freaky, the woo-woo pharmacy where I buy the like the cough medicine that doesn't work? Is that what homeostatic is? That might be homeopathic. Oh, right, right, I'm right, talking right, right. about. I'm just talking about that level, that level that your body or your mind enjoys the most and is most used to being at. Sort of like your physical harmony. Is that what homeostasis sure. is? Okay. Yeah, All right. Exactly. I kind of want to add that it wasn't just my wheelchair sport, but my wheelchair using friends that were encouraging to me. I also had some amazing friends that were able-bodied that were definitely on board with, let's not look at everything that comes upon us as a problem that we can't deal with. Let's figure out how we can find the solutions. And so I had a girlfriend in college, one of my friends who we would arrive somewhere at someone's house, all the houses were upstairs and she would just say, Hey, hop on my back. I jump on her back. I would hook my arms over her shoulders. She would turn around, bend over. I would grab the wheelchair. She would stand up and walk up a flight of stairs with me on her back in the wheelchair in front and people around us kind of going, are we sure this is how we want to do this? But just figuring out how to make things work and having an immediate response to any problem or barrier was really helpful to have friends who encouraged that. And I didn't feel like I was all alone trying to figure everything out by myself. So surrounding yourself with good friends and people that are on board with making the world a better place for anybody, able-bodied people, people with disabilities, I would suggest that for all people. How long did it take for you to feel like Mora again? I think in bits and pieces, I was feeling like Mora again pretty quickly because of my best friend, my sister, who was always finding a way to make me laugh, which just gives your brain sort of a little like jolt, a little punch of, you know, feel good feelings and endorphins. I had good friends who were trying to help me do what we were all wanting to do. But returning to sort of like this pre-injury set point of contentment or happiness, I I think that that came back within a couple of months, but I was on a decline slide 
because the reality was setting in. This idea about post-traumatic growth is that you can have this process of experiencing positive growth beyond like the pre-trauma baseline. And I was on this downward slide following getting out of the hospital and finishing off high school and trying to figure out how I was going to do all of this. Then I landed within a year, less than a year after I broke my back, I've landed at the University of Illinois with all of these athletes who were really doing life in a healthy and focused manner. And everything from that point on was fun and exciting and a lot of like positive learning happening there. And I experienced an enormous amount of personal growth in those first two years regarding how I was going to move forward in my life as a wheelchair user and wanting to be the kind of person who led not with my wheelchair, but just with my presence or my energy. That was something that I learned at that time. And for that to happen that early after I was injured, I think set me up for successes in life that I I could have never imagined. How did you start thinking about dating and did the wheelchair present emotional blocks for you and make you scared that maybe you wouldn't be accepted as a potential love interest for someone else? For me, absolutely. I was like, I will choose to just not date. (laughs) I I did not want to date. I went through different iterations of that where I would be like, well, maybe I'll go out with someone and I would go out once or twice. And then I would be like, that's enough. I've had enough of dating. I did not feel comfortable putting myself in that place of vulnerability that you have to go to when you date and get to know somebody and think about having a long-term relationship or a marriage relationship with someone. I really didn't think that was going to be in the cards for me at all. You stayed single for a pretty long time. How did it feel when your other friends were getting married and moving on with their lives? When my girlfriends started getting married, it was one of those moments in my life when I realized I felt I had othered myself. You had done what? (laughs) I had othered myself. I had made myself think like I was different from, separate from my friends and that they were doing something that was for other people and not for me. And I would have real, powerful, deeply sad and emotional moments right around the time of their weddings. I was in denial that what I longed for and wanted for myself was a loving partner. I wanted to have someone to go through life with. And it took me a long time to think that that could be a possibility for myself. I never thought that I was going to find somebody who I would want to marry or who might want to marry me. So the marriage isn't for me attitude that you had adopted was really just self-preservation. Yeah. And it wasn't working for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. (laughs) So how did it feel when Kevin came along and wanted you for you? It was the best thing ever. And it was exciting and it was surprising And it was also the easiest thing, just like love really should be. And I'm grateful and happy that we found each other. Very easily could have not happened. Was it because you didn't think you deserved it? Or was it because you didn't think anybody would want it? Or because you just didn't want to confront the awkwardness of dating from a wheelchair? 
Yeah, I think it was a little bit of all of it. Part of it was like, who would want to deal with this, which is language that I can't believe I'm using because it's so negative. Uh, But that's how I felt way back then, 30 years ago. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want anybody to feel like they were might have to take care of me. And I was also really, really afraid of being rejected. That just was so scary to imagine, like, not only do I have a disability, that's very obvious. People have all kinds of stuff going on that we don't get to know about. Mine is just really obvious. It just felt too, too much. I could not have handled any kind of rejection someone being like, you know what, this isn't working. I might've blamed it on the fact that I was disabled or had a wheelchair. Emotionally, I I couldn't go there for quite a while. It really took me almost 10 years before I I started dating in a serious way, which was when I was 27. And how'd you know that your husband was the guy for you? (laughs) Well, first of all, my husband was the guy I was dating when I broke my back, which was very strange when we met again, almost 15 years later. So Kevin and I knew each other in high school. He went to Pius. We had always been friends. He had called me up and asked me out the summer before my injury. And I was going to meet him the night that I broke my back. And then immediately, this was something me not wanting to date was something I was aware of in Shepherd because I basically, you know, he was coming to visit me. He was really concerned, sent me cards. I still have those cards. I told him, I said, really, let's just be friends. Why don't we just be friends? And he said, okay. And we remained friends, but it just not in touch too much over the years. Maybe once or twice we ran into each other. Pre-Facebook, obviously. Pre-Facebook, we ran into each other at like a reunion, the 10-year reunion. And then again, when we were in our early 30s, he just walked in. I was out with my sister, of course, in East Atlanta. And he walked in and walked right up to the table and sat down. We talked for about 15 minutes. And he said, I'm going to call you. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And he left. And I said to my sister, do you think he remembers that he's the guy I was dating when I broke my back? (laughs) She was like, I don't know. So he calls me and we went out once and neither of us brought it up. And then we went out like the second time and it was like immediate. Oh my God. Chatting, talking felt really familiar, felt really easy, felt totally just, that's the best word. It was just easy to be around him. Again, I had to consult my sister and I was like, he didn't say anything about the fact that we were dating when I broke my back. And she was like, what do you expect? Like, nobody would know what to say (laughs) in that moment. You're going to have to bring it up. And I was like, all right. So when we went out, I got a second or third date. I brought it up. It came up and that just unloaded just this flood, unleashed this flood of conversation and catching up in a way that was just really special. And he was just so cool about it and at ease with everything. And we had so much fun. It was pretty obvious pretty quickly that we were probably going to spend our lives together. And how does that history inform who you and Kevin are today as a couple and as parents? Wow. Hold on. Let me think about that. That's a great question. Gosh, Paul, hold on. How does that inform who we are now and who we are as parents? Honestly, that history is important, but what happened the way we bonded in the first sort of three years of our relationship and our marriage, that is what has informed 
how we parent and how we move forward as a couple more than this trauma connection that we have in our past. That's what I think. But part of what you do professionally is related to accessibility. I'm a speech and language pathologist, and I work with families who have children with a variety of different communication disorders and differences like autism or speech and language delays and disorders. Also, my husband and I own a business called We Rock the Spectrum Daphne, which is an inclusion gym, but it's really a gym of acceptance. We don't want to just raise awareness about children with different abilities, different communication strategies, behaviors that might be associated with social communication disorders. We just want to give families with children of all abilities a place to go and interact and play with all kids because that is where awareness and acceptance begins, is with our children interacting and playing with other children with disabilities and differences, and with the parents building community, you know, out in a play space. Our schools have done a great job. We have a long way to go. Our schools have done a great job, though, of bringing children with all kinds of different abilities into the schools, into the classroom, through inclusion models, but there's not a lot of play opportunities for families with kids who have different abilities. And so we rock the spectrum. Daphne is one of those places and we brought it to our community and we are having a total blast with it. It's a lot of fun. We both love it. How does your accident change you as a person? How do you think you'd be different if it never had happened? Well, I think it forced me to slow down and it's still something I need to remind myself to do all the time. You seem pretty active. (laughs) And be patient with myself, be patient to learn to stick with the process. Sometimes I'm real quick to jump to what's the end goal here? What's the end goal? Anything I'm doing in life. And as a speech therapist and as a person who has been through a process of renewal, sticking with the process and allowing the process to play itself out has been one of the most important lessons, I think, for me. So are you more patient with things? And do you maybe not sweat the small stuff as much as you would otherwise? I think I'm definitely more patient. That's like a mindful practice that I need to engage in and have been doing ever since I was 17 years old when this happened. How do you do that? I mean, I have to like stop myself and be like, hold on, or I journal or listening to different podcasts or through reading different books, just just the personal growth that we all, I believe, need to pursue as we move through our life from beginning to end. I'm definitely have grown more mindful of that throughout the years in terms of sweating the small stuff. I still sweat the small stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Good. That makes you see you're the same person. Let me ask you this question. Sometimes you'll hear someone say something like, I wouldn't trade my disability for anything. What percentage of that answer is rationalization? I think it's rationalization for a lot of people a hundred percent for part of their lives. For me, I did not think that that was a possibility for a very long time, sort of finding the meaning behind why something, why this happened to me. That took until probably after I was married and had my children. I heard people say that. I would have people say, I think that this injury, this spinal cord injury or This disability is the best thing that ever happened to me. And I would be completely perplexed, confused, 
angered. It would make me angry to hear people say that because I wasn't there. I was like, why are you saying that? Like, you can go ahead and try to believe that all you want. I'm never going to believe that. And then as I had more and more experiences in life, as you move forward in life, as the years, you know, go behind you, you can no longer separate your disability from your life experience. So Mm. I've been in a wheelchair now longer than I was able-bodied. Everything I've done in my adult life, everything that has happened has happened from a wheelchair in my wheelchair. And sometimes because of it, I never would have done wheelchair sports (laughs) if I wasn't in a wheelchair. I never would have competed as a college athlete if I hadn't been a wheelchair athlete. I had no desire to be a, a collegiate athlete when I was in high school, but this changed all of that. And then meeting the people that I met who were doing great things. I was in the room with some of the greatest wheelchair athletes in the history of wheelchair sports. They were focused. They were determined. They knew what they wanted to do. They were interested in advocacy. These were all things that were kind of born to me at 17, 18, 19, and 20 when I was much younger. So my wheelchair has, in fact, been the best thing that's ever happened to me because I've overcome I hate to say it, I've overcome obstacles that I never could have dreamed of if this hadn't happened to me. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've met people I never would have met. And I don't even know if Kevin and I would have reunited at the right time in our lives if this hadn't happened and we hadn't been able to go out in the world in the way that we did and live life. Right. And be at a place where we could come back and be ready for a relationship and marriage and kids. I certainly was not ready for that in my 20s at all. I was not interested. Maura, what advice would you give to a person who is newly injured? First of all, I would tell them, make sure you take care of your shoulders because your shoulders are your life. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Non-obvious, right? If you let those go, you won't be able to do a lot of anything because you need your shoulders to be strong in order to stay active and independent. I would also tell them, find your voice. And surround yourself with people who are on board with your dreams. Like if anyone makes you feel like your disability is a problem for them, you have to let those people go and find the people who want to help you solve your problems and not focus on them. That would be my advice. How do you feel when you see an able-bodied person parked in a disabled parking spot? (laughs) Well, it's hard to tell. Like I was mentioning earlier, there are lots of invisible disabilities. So When I was younger, I used to sort of look at people and wonder, I wonder what those people think they're doing. But generally, when it comes to handicap parking, you have no idea why somebody may need that parking space. And I just hope that people don't park in the blue lines, whether or not they're (laughs) disabled. (laughs) Just don't park in the blue lines because that space is there so people can get in and out of their vans or their cars if they need the extra space. That's good. Last question. Do you feel rich? Oh, I feel I have more than I ever could have imagined. So I guess I do. I have two great kids. I have a husband who I trust and adore and love and who I could lean on any old time. Makes me a better person. I feel like I have more than I need and all that I need. More, I really appreciate your time. Where can our audience find out more about you and your business on the internet? Thanks, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. If any of your listeners want to find me, my husband and I run We Rock the Spectrum Daphne. They can find us on Facebook at We Rock the Spectrum Daphne or Instagram, WRTS Daphne. We also have a website, 
WeRockTheSpectrumDaphne.com. And I run my own private speech pathology business at We Rock the Spectrum Daphne. And if people think they need a pediatric speech and language therapist to help them with their kiddos, I'm there. And it's something I love to do. Speech time therapy services. All right. Thanks so much, Maura. Thank you so much, Paul. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Maura. I know I promise to not call you a hero or to say that you're inspirational, but kind of, kind of a little bit. I mean, at the very least, your story and your journey is really, really interesting and informative about the potential of human beings to become and endure and thrive amidst some of the most challenging circumstances that life can throw at us. And I find this important because the hedonic treadmill, again, our tendency and ability to adapt to whatever life throws at us was something I hadn't even heard of until just a few years ago. So if there's one thing I want people of this podcast to kind of understand and be able to speak about, that's one of them, the hedonic treadmill. You will adapt to bad things or great things, again, in quotation marks, that life throws your way. So don't put too much emphasis on them either way. That leads into the first takeaway. Obviously, there's life after paralysis. I found Mora's answer to the question I asked her about the rationalization of the role that paralysis played in her life. I found that answer to be 100% legit. I found it to be 100% sincere, and I buy it. I think it's different when you read it somewhere than when you hear somebody say, like, look, this is my life. At 50 years old, if you're holding on to who you were in high school, that's not necessarily a position of strength to be coming from. So I buy what she says. Secondly, language. We're lectured a lot about language these days when it comes to race and gender and sexual orientation and all that kind of stuff. And the area of disabilities is another place where specific language, person-first language is emphasized so that you're honoring the humanity of the person that you're talking about. Using person using a wheelchair as opposed to wheelchair-bound person, for example. I know it can sound somewhat persnickety, but I think the most important thing is that each of us tries to respect each other in a way that doesn't really take that much effort. Give it your best. Google disability terminology and just give yourself a five-minute primer on the language that's being used in that world these days. I found it pretty helpful. Third, I've bumped into some old friends recently. Some old friends came to my comedy show a couple of weeks ago, and there's just this thing about bumping into people that I've known since like 1978. It's like hearing Fleetwood Mac on the radio. It just takes me back to a time when my life is fantastic now. I am the luckiest person I know. I have had great, great fortune, and I experience warmth and love every single day. I just get a warm, fuzzy feeling from seeing people I went to grade school with and reminding me of the life I had when I was a kid. I was very fortunate to have a great life back then. And so, uh, I don't know. I just enjoyed talking to Mora and catching up with her just as I did seeing Sarah, Dinah, Leah, and the other folks that came out to the show two weeks ago. So, uh, hey, if you have a minute, say, hey, I'm Paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. If you have a sec, also rate and review the show. Those ratings go a long way in telling potential new listeners that there is something of quality happening here at the Crazy Money Podcast Empire, and I appreciate your endorsement thereof. Got a great interview with somebody called Moby, the artist Moby, the musician Moby, 
whom you know from his incredible music that he's created over the past 30 years or so. That's coming up next week on Crazy Money. You'll definitely want to check that out. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.